from a very general level. I think people, some people don't raise enough or they build a business plan and they don't raise more. You know, whatever you think you need, you're always going to need more. So raise more because there's nothing more tragic than thinking you only need a million dollars, but coming in in a million three and not being able to get that extra $300,000. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today I'm super excited to have on as my guest, Jasmine Moy who is the preeminent attorney for restaurants and all others in the hospitality industry in New York. And um, I've read a number of her interviews, and I did a bit of research leading up to this, and I'm just really grateful that uh, you took the time to come in and do this interview, Jasmine. So first off, thank you for that. Stephen, thanks for having me. And you know, in my research, I learned that something uh, you and I have in common, I too worked for Let Us Entertain You in Chicago. (laughs) I went to the (laughs) University of Chicago and I graduated and I wound up working for them. I don't know if you remember when they opened up that sort of massive food court in Water Tower. Yeah, of course, of course. So I was there for that whole process before they even opened it and went through, I think it was a solid two-week training before we opened it. That restaurant, I was a host and it was great. That's a a really uh, phenomenal group and I still remember many of the lessons that I learned from those guys. Yeah. And you know what I loved about Lettuce is that um, they really, I mean, when I was with them, which was quite a long time ago, but they really encouraged and like upward mobility. You know what I mean? There were definitely folks who started as bussers in a restaurant I worked with and managed promotions to servers, managed promotions to restaurants. And my very first manager at this place called Antico Posto, which was out in the suburbs at Oak Brook Mall. But the opening manager was a guy named Mark Jacob. And Mark was someone who also started, I think it's a dishwasher and let us entertain you. And by the time I was working with him, he was one of the general partners and was overseeing a good third, I think, of, of the lettuce properties. So, you know, they really kept people loyal and rewarded that loyalty. And I think that those kind of jobs are really, it's hard to get and it's hard to find companies that allow that kind of upward mobility, unfortunately. I mean, I think that it's, it's a little few and far between right now. Definitely. I remember the best lesson I learned from them is I remember when we were going through the training and as I said, I was going to be a host. They said, look, once this restaurant opens, there's going to be a lot of people who show up who are going to claim that they have a reservation because they want to get in and it's it's well known. And even though they they didn't, they're, they may be telling a small fib, but their ultimate objective is to come into our restaurant and they're so desirous of participating in it. So always handle that with sensitivity and accommodate people. And I just remembered that being such a phenomenal lesson that no matter what goes on, the whole purpose is to just really respect the customer and look at it from that perspective rather than any other perspective that might have come into your head as an untrained, you know, young person. And um, a lesson that stuck with me to today, which I share with the people here at Wilco. So anyway, just a fun sort of tidbit that uh, we had that shared experience. Can you please share with us a little bit about how you got into this particular area of the law is your specialty with restaurants and hospitality? 
I don't know how sort of familiar your listeners are with really how lawyers are able to maybe change positions or change firms, but um, in large part, it is due to to what we would call rainmaking or finding clients. So to the extent that you have a network of sort of built-in people that you know that can be clients or built-in people who are clients, people will give you a chance because, you know, a firm will hire you because if you can bring in a lot of business and bring a lot of income to the firm. So I was in corporate litigation and it is generally pretty hard to, to switch like basically zones of like legal expertise sort of midway through a career but I was really burned out. I, I never loved litigation. I, I took it because I had a lot of law school loans that I needed to pay off. And it was the first job that I could get. And um, I hated it. I hated really every day of it. Um, you know, I was a very little cog and a very big machine and was working 100, 120 hours a week doing a job that I did not particularly like. But uh, in order to find something to do that I loved, loved eating out at restaurants. And was doing a lot of, you know, I spent a, a large portion of my income at, at restaurants, was meeting a lot of chefs, meeting managers, meeting sommeliers. I was eating out enough to like spot food trends. So I just started freelance writing about food for various publications. I was writing for Time Out New York, front of the book stuff for Food and Wine Magazine, doing a lot of like food and restaurant blogging for like AOL, you know, which had a whole sort of city by city verticals, a lot of online writing for um, Esquire magazines online line food vertical. Doing all of that writing, I was meeting more and more chefs, more and more restaurateurs. I was doing a lot of interviews. And one day I just woke up and was like, why am I, you know, why am I a lawyer, you know, in this job that I hate talking to all these people in the industry that I love? Why isn't there a way to marry that? And sure enough, there's a whole cottage industry of people, you know, in New York in particular, you know, all the first tier cities can support whole segments of the legal population that serve the hospitality industry. So I basically talked to as many restaurant lawyers as I could in the city and happened to have met somebody who had a small firm who could use a hand and took me on, even though he knew I didn't really know anything about, you know, his day to day and was able to partially train me, but also partially toss me in the deep end and let me try to figure it out. But, you know, I was able to sort of sustain and maintain my job at that firm because I knew a ton of people. So a ton of people were coming to me for legal help. So, you know, I really built my practice both in a combination of getting this job at this small firm, but also having had the network of people that I knew who became my clients, who also became people who referred clients to me, which is the only way that I was able to sort of sustain that practice. And also it enabled me four years later to go out on my own and start my own practice, which is where I work now. I'm a, I'm a solo practitioner. It's a great story. I, I've never practiced professionally, but I'm a, I'm an attorney as well, and I've done pro bono work, and I find it to be almost universally the case that the people that I know from law school and my friends that love what they do are either solo practitioners or or they deliberately pursued an area of the law that was in alignment with their passion or in their nature, because it is easy to get sucked into aspects of that profession that can be very unpleasant. I think it's really great that you were able to marry that with your original passion and carve out such an amazing niche. One of the main focuses of this podcast that I like to, you know, sort of sort of the center of it is there's so much great content out there about recipes and pairings of wines and all of the foodie stuff, but I think there's not enough content out there about what it really takes to run and operate and scale a successful restaurant because as a business venture, it's an incredibly exciting but challenging business, much like any other business. And as with any business, formation and, and all of those other aspects are crucial. 
Before we get into what's going on today and, and the opportunities and challenges that exist, what would you say are some of the more common mistakes that you see people make when they start up a restaurant? Some of the things they neglect to do, either from a legal or compliance standpoint, that should definitely not be overlooked and, and something that unfortunately you do see people potentially overlook, obviously not your clients, but just in general, or things that are important to think about just from the inception so that you build a solid legal foundation for your business. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are a few things and, you know, I don't want these to come off as too self-serving if the moral of the story is always hire a lawyer. But I think, well, number one, I mean, from a very general level, I think people, some people don't raise enough or they build a business plan and they don't raise more, you know, whatever you think you need, you're always going to need more. So raise more because there's nothing more tragic than thinking you only need a million dollars, but coming in in a million three and not being able to get that extra $300,000 and almost getting to the finish line and not being able to get across it. That is tragic and it is hard to raise money. So, you know, not raising enough or not raising um, also operating reserve to float you for those beginning months when nobody knows who you are, or if you open sort of towards late in the fall or early winter when dining might slow down a little bit, or even like in the middle of the summer where so many people, especially in New York, leave the city on sort of like extended vacations for the summer. So not raising enough or not raising up, you know, enough to, to cover several months worth of operating capital, you know, operating reserves. I think those like the basic, basic mistakes that I think people tend to make. But secondarily, you have no idea how many calls I get from people who running into problems with their landlord, but who basically just signed the lease on the dotted line and didn't have anybody review it because they were of the position that, oh, you know, tenants don't have a lot of bargaining power. There's not a lot I can do to change this lease. And while they're right that on the major items, there aren't a lot of things to change on that lease, there are so many small, reasonable things that you can do to protect yourself within the document to keep yourself from, you know, getting harassed by your landlord or or things like that, or to force the landlord's hand to make repairs that the landlord is supposed to make. So there are a lot of things, you know, ways that people are not protected in their lease that they could be very easily if they hire someone to look at it. But a lot of people just sign leases without attorneys. And that I think is a little dangerous. Or conversely, you know, they didn't do enough due diligence on the space. So maybe they signed the lease and because they didn't have a lawyer saying, well, hold on a second. Like, have you had your, you know, engineer walk by? Have you had your architect walk in? Have you examined the certificate of occupancy? Have you, did you double check the Department of Buildings violations? A, a lot of these things are things that if you've never signed a lease before, you wouldn't necessarily know to do. But if you, God forbid, you sign a lease on a space and then find out that, you know, there were a ton of open violations, it's going to take you another 12 months to like get through this, or God forbid, you have a landmark facade or something, basically not doing the right due diligence on the space, which is something you may not do if you don't have an attorney telling you exactly what to kind of due diligence to do and you haven't been through it before. So that's like another big thing. And then maybe some folks will open a restaurant and then not put time into a, a partnership agreement that delineates each of their responsibilities to their other, you know, to the other partners and to the business that doesn't set reasonable expectations for their investors. Not spending time on a, on a document that really lays the ground rules is also sort of a inviting disaster later. Businesses, partnerships, friendships dissolve all the time. You know, business relationships are not that different from romantic relationships. Sometimes you grow apart. You don't grow the same ways that relationship deteriorates. And without having a really good document to talk about how you deal with that, you're inviting yourself into court to fight about it 
for five years, potentially bankrupting your business. So, you know, not having the document that lays the ground rules and sets clear expectations is, 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 is a mistake. But a lot of people make it because they're like, oh, I'm going into business with my husband or I'm going into the business with my best friend. We are going to be fine. And then it turns out they're not fine. <laughs> and then how do you how do you make that separation? Absolutely. I, I think that's a crucial point that I think everybody really needs to take to heart because you have enough challenges as it is to start up a, a business, especially one like a restaurant. There's no need to layer on top of it avoidable problems. And um, I also think that based upon where we're at now, it's more important than ever to have an attorney review leases because, and I'm curious to your thoughts on this, Jasmine, I remember the 2008 financial crisis. And in 2009 and 10, I saw a number of our customers either renegotiating leases, taking over space next door, or pursuing other opportunities because for the first time in a while, in 09 and 10, the pendulum swung back in the direction of the tenant in a way that it hadn't in a long time. And I'm of the opinion that we're heading into that type of a dynamic right now, although it might even be a potentially even greater period of strength for tenants based upon what's happening to retail. So first off, I'm curious as to whether or not you agree with that, that we're sort of entering a moment in time, and obviously this is going to play out over the coming months and potentially years. But do you think we're entering a time where tenants, particularly independent restaurants, are going to have more leverage than we've seen them have in a number of years? I actually don't know that I agree with you on that. I mean, yeah. number one, I want to say I have no crystal ball. I, I have no super strong feelings on this, but I think a couple of things are working against this. Is well, number one, it, I think it generally takes the real estate market six to twelve months to sort of catch up with what's on the ground, but. I think also when you talk about the changes in retail, a lot of what restaurants rely on is walk-by traffic. Not all restaurants are destination restaurants. And if you're not a destination restaurant, you know, you're relying on people walking by. And whether those people are people shopping or whether those people are people who are walking to work, so many offices and companies are now going remote. So I I think that there are neighborhoods that will really fundamentally change in a sort of negative way um, as it relates to to restaurants. Sometimes that will lead to dropping rents, but the rents are dropping because the availability of of your business is dropping. You know, the potential of that location has dropped because of the business surrounding it. So in neighborhoods where I think you've got a ton of folks who are in these neighborhoods for whatever reason, they're more touristy, they're more accessible, they're sort of hotspots in the city. I don't know that rents will drop there all that much, realistically speaking. I think the one benefit that anybody has who's looking to sign a new lease is they have the benefit of knowing that this pandemic is in existence and that is a force that we will have to contend with the next 12 to 18 months if we're lucky and that they can know to either not get into business right now if their model is not one that can be solely sustained via takeout and delivery or they can create the business model that relies solely on takeout and delivery and not sign a lease with rent somewhere that they don't think a purely delivery and takeout business can sustain, which is not something that the benefit of anybody who has an existing lease had. Everybody who signed an existing lease counted for a certain amount of eat-in dining that now does not exist. So there are certainly benefits on this, on the other side of this, but the benefits I think come more from the planning and anticipation of this rather than maybe an overall more beneficial landscape for the tenants. So following up on what you're saying, I remember in 09 and 10, the types of concepts that seemed to be most prevalent coming out of of the financial crisis were concepts that really focused on affordability and phenomenal food. 
there's always been eras in New York City dining where you've had these just spectacular dining rooms and the spectacular ambiance, which is the reason why people would go. And the focus, I don't want to say shifted because quality of the food has always been important, but the focus was really, you had the emergence of these affordable, now they're institutions, I'm thinking off the top of my head of, of Frank in the East Village and a whole bunch of places like that. If I'm understanding you, you think that the concepts that are going to be most sought after now or the most necessary, even to put it that way, are concepts that can either exist solely as takeout and delivery or are able to utilize those attributes as a huge part of their restaurant if and when uh, dining inside comes back into play. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just, even de Blasio is signaling today that, that he may not let any on-premises dining through the end of the year. So for anybody to sign a lease right now, thinking that 2021 is going to be entirely different when it's not. There's still not a vaccine. Like, really, we need to be talking about two-year plans at a bare minimum. Nobody can be signing a lease right now if if they can't sustain it the first year of their business without in-premises dining. So, yeah. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the legal side, but the question is so tempting for me. I have to ask it if, if it's something that you have an opinion on. I'm wondering what the constitutional permissibility is of prohibiting indoor dining in New York City, but allowing it in all other aspects of New York State. I understand that the police powers that the governor has are immense, but there is a a thing called the 14th Amendment. And I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. How is it that they can just carve out this one part of New York State? Because when I've listened to Governor Cuomo's arguments, they center upon two sort of assertions, as I understand them. One is he doesn't like the way that people have been complying with his edicts, so he's going to punish the entire city, which in my mind is prima facie unconstitutional. And the other is somehow that the science of New York City doesn't allow it, but he's talking about air conditioning, which I assume they have in Schenectady and Albany and Westchester as well. So do you think that this class action suit has any sort of strong legal argument that will enable them to prevail should they go through with it? I mean, I am definitely not a constitutional law scholar. So I I mean, I can't even opine. But realistically speaking, you know, there are class action lawsuits that are being brought or in active discussion about being brought. And I don't think any group or any lawyer would spend the time to do it if they didn't think they had a valid, you know, argument for, for bringing the, the suit. And yeah, you know, you're looking at cases in Long Island, you're looking at cases in Westchester, which are not on the rise, even though that there has been in-premises dining now for long enough to notice a spike if there were going to be one. But yeah, these businesses are, are being held hostage somewhat. And there are, you know, a lot of people talking about bringing class action lawsuits. I don't know exactly what stage any of these are in. But yeah, I mean, these are all, all, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people's livelihoods at stake. So <laughs> to me, it's actually quite yeah. sad. I'm I'm very mm-hmm. proud of the restaurant community, I have to say. I mean, we're, we're a broadline distributor, so we have a lot of restaurants, but we sell other food service entities. But the level of resiliency and tenacity has been incredibly inspiring because what these places have been subjected to is, is tough stuff. So back to back to the initial comments that you were making. So now we have a situation as is being reported, If I'm and correct me if I'm misstating this, but something like 80% of tenants have not paid their rent in full, 40% haven't paid their rent at all. This to me seems to be the beginnings of what will inevitably morph into a massive financial crisis if it's not addressed somehow, because what's going to happen with all of these properties? You you and I were talking earlier about retail. Whatever that's going to do to the cityscape, the reality is there's less demand for brick and mortar retail. 
that demand was being taken up by Pilates studios and yoga classes and restaurants and, and other experiential things. I mean, at, at some point, they're going to open up the floodgate and allow evictions to occur. But wouldn't it be in the interests of landlords to... I did an earlier interview with the owner of Bagatelle, Remy Laban. He was suggesting that there may be an increase in sort of quasi-partnerships or even partnerships between landlords and restaurants, where restaurants are given a market or below market rent in exchange for a percentage of revenue. And I'm, I'm aware that this goes on as we speak, but that that would be more prevalent. I'm wondering how you think, A, this is going to shake out over the next six months, and B, do you think we will see more partnerships or more unique and creative financial arrangements between tenants and landlords in the restaurant space? You know, I, I think right when all of this is going down, there were a lot of people saying, oh, the only way a restaurant is going to survive is if they get percentage rent. And I think by and large, and this is having talked to other you know lawyers in the hospitality space, people have been not so excited about the prospect of percentage rent. I mean, it just if you just think about the mechanics of this, percentage rent is an is an unpredictable source of income, and at least without a reasonable like base minimum. So I don't think any flat percentage rent is going to become super prevalent. I think a, a lower base with a percentage is something that I have been negotiating for clients, but you know they and and landlords have accepted it, but on on a limited basis. They'll say we're to, we'll talk about doing this, but only for the next year and a half or two years. Afterwards, we got to go back to our regular rent because the banks want to see a regular rent. If you have a mortgage on the property or want to borrow money from a bank, the bank needs to know that there's a consistent income from the property, and percentage rent doesn't really get you there. So I don't know that landlords will be super like more into percentage rent now than they were before. And, you know, this is all with caveats in that food halls are almost all percentage rent. You know, there are setups that sort of rely on percentage rent in a way that brick and mortar doesn't. So if we're talking about sort of how this applies to brick and mortar, you know, I'm not sure that the fundamentals are going to change as much as I think some people would hope. But what I do think is that as an operator as or as a restaurateur, that there will be more demand by operators and restaurateurs to to make those partnerships, you know, to enter in partnerships with developers for whom their business is an asset, for whom their business is an amenity, either to the neighborhood that that developer needs to develop or to the building that that developer needs to fill. And when the developer needs you to be who you are, you can be negotiating more for these, these sort of alternative type deals. And I do believe that those deals are going to be much more attractive to food and beverage operators moving forward, especially having seen how fickle and greedy so many landlords have been in light of COVID. So I think just signing a regular lease with a regular landlord or signing a regular lease with a landlord who you actually might think is a dick, you know, or you don't trust him or her, you know, or you find them sort of slimy. I think that those are the kind of leases you're not going to sign anymore. You know, you need to have a more, a higher level of trust, a higher sort of zone of of relationship with your landlord now going forward than you might have prioritized in the past. And whether that is solely the relationship or whether that's the relationship is documented in an agreement that provides for percentage rent or some sort of rent structure that allows both people to profit together and to take hits together at the same time, I think has yet to be seen. But, you know, I think those deals are great deals, but it's it's not always necessary. Not all the landlords care what kind of tenant ends up in their space. Some of them do, but many of them don't. So to say that all of the rent deals or that many rent deals will switch, you know, I think is presuming that landlords care more about who ends up in their space than they actually do if that makes any sense. I would say that the big driver in a lot of what's going to happen is probably at, at the end of the day going to be the banks. Because for those property owners that do have mortgages, 
If the banks are not flexible, then they're the ones that are going to be left with the challenge. And if the banks are flexible, then they'll have to obviously demonstrate to the bank, you know, what they're doing. Generally speaking, the banks don't want to be landlords. And that's why I'm saying we could be sort of witnessing the early tremblings of a financial crisis if this goes unchecked, because the banks are going to have to write down enormous amounts of money. Uh, because at the end of the day, commercial real estate, and this was happening even before the pandemic, as you know, you see and I see, and it seems to happen every several years in New York, where the number of vacancies were of such a level that they were floating the idea of rent stabilization for commercial tenants. By the way, do you see that as ever being a possibility? That was being discussed pre-pandemic, and I hear it discussed a little bit more. Do you think that could ever come to fruition? And if you had an opinion on it, would you be in favor of something like that? Oh, gosh. Do I think it would come to fruition? Uh, uh, my gut instinct on that is probably no. The real estate lobby is a force to be reckoned with. So, you know, we're talking about what they allow to happen. And even though I have been so really heartened and impressed by the, the sheer organization of the hospitality industry in this moment and how they have collectively formed a couple of major groups who have been working together to do so much lobbying and and to make movement and to make real change. It's been deeply, deeply impressive. But I mean, I think instituting something like what we're discussing is is really sort of overhauling the commercial contract relationship in a way that I think would be beneficial to restaurateurs. I, I just can't help but think it's probably unlikely for, for that sort of shift to, to happen. I would love for it too, but I'm, I'm a little bit of a cynic, unfortunately. Speaking of cynical, before I ask my next question, I, I always thought, uh, I guess erroneously, that there was a lot of clout behind the arts and, and the fashion industry and the hospitality industry in general. And it's true, there have been a number of amazing organizations that have been formed on the fly, but it is to me, a bit shocking that all of these coalitions have not been able to budge either the governor or the mayor on a number of these restrictions that seem to really be targeting this industry. Even real estate developers, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think malls are open in New York City right now. I'm just shocked that people like Steve Ross or others just don't have that political clout, but I guess there's a lesson in there. Something that I've noticed is that the demand for people to go out to eat is not been dissuaded by the pandemic. And I say that based on the popularity of uh, outdoor dining, which for our restaurants that offer it, particularly those in a good location, the demand is off the charts. One of our accounts, Frenchette, just opened. It was published in Eater. That to me was a big question mark that's been answered, which is will people want to go out to eat? So therefore, I don't think the model of the restaurant or dining out or being social is broken. I think that there were certain businesses that were fractured pre-pandemic certain retail stores and, and certain shopping concepts. I don't think that's the case for the restaurant. Can, can so, I say the Frenchette, I think, is is sort of a, I don't want to say like an extreme case, but, you know, before COVID hit, Frenchette was still, you know, maybe one of the top five, but, you know, like certainly top 10 hottest restaurants in the city. So I think looking at them as an indicator or as a bellwether for everybody else is not exactly fair because there are so many restaurants that are they're fine. They are neighborhood restaurants. They are not hot. They are not buzzy. They're not chic. And and I think that there's a real gap. You know, you look at Lilia or Missy or whatever, that they were also booked out two months in advance before COVID. But that's a very unique and small subset of restaurants that are like hot, 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 which is sort of where I consider Frenchette. So 
yeah, I'm so happy that they're doing well. I'm so happy their patio slammed. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've talked to them really about their numbers, but even folks that I have whose patios are doing great, if, even if they are able to turn them three times a night, you know, they're still barely making by, like really, really eking out, if not still operating at a slight loss. They're doing it with, with supplementary funds still and still trying to spend out their PPP, which is the only way that they're allowed to keep doing this, really. My point wasn't so much that this is a viable business model, just being limited to outdoor dining and takeout. It's definitely not. I mean, they're paying rent so that they can utilize the space. My point was that people's desire to go out and dine out has not been utterly changed by this pandemic, as certain people were predicting in the in the early weeks of it. At least that's what I'm seeing on my end. So then the question becomes, and I, I saw Andrew Zimmerman in an interview had actually, you know, there's a lot of negative things going on, but was actually positive looking out the next five to 10 years. He felt it could be the golden era for restaurants. Do you see a scenario where, I know you've already talked about rent and and that not abating in certain areas, and if it abates in areas, it's going to abate because there's less foot traffic, et cetera, and so you would need destination spots to open there. But since people still want to go out to eat, do you see that being a viable business model two, three, four years out whenever you think the pandemic's going to end, or do you think that we're just going to evolve to a ghost kitchen only type of reality in the city or some hybrid What are your thoughts about the future of the industry once we get to the other side of this? I fundamentally agree that people, especially in New York, who are social people who moved to New York, maybe in part because of the dining, are still going to want to eat out. But I do have to say, you know, I've talked to chefs who have opened up several of their own restaurants who are now getting more into the ghost kitchen game. And they're realizing that it's a lot easier to make money if you're not paying a whole bunch of front of house staff. The metrics are fundamentally different and fundamentally like more kind to the operator if you're not operating a sit down restaurant at a very high level, you know, with with a ton of front of house service, with employing a sommelier and a pastry chef and all of these other people that make a dining experience extraordinary. So I know a lot of people who are saying, you know, I don't know that I'm going to want to take the risk to finally raise all this money to open a full service restaurant like this, having seen what happens to full service restaurants. I do think that there will be a shift to many chefs moving to a ghost kitchen model and, and getting involved with like companies who are sort of doing this. And a lot of people may until there are vaccines, you know, well, there are a lot of people who feel safe eating out now. I certainly personally, so this is anecdotally, know a lot of people who are not at all comfortable eating out. So until there's a vaccine, I think pre-vaccine and post accessibility, the wide accessibility of a vaccine, we have two different stories, but certainly I would hope that once everybody has a vaccine and, you know, once every, this, this thing has stopped spreading, it's like wildfire. I would hope that, you know, we can all sit down in restaurants for long, you know, large format meals and whatnot. But, you know, I, I, I do think that generally there will be a shift that will maybe have a quite a long tail as it relates to sort of the shift out of, you know, in-premises dining or finer dining or investing in finer dining because it's just harder. I mean, you know, at the beginning of, the, of, of our talk, you talked about folks opening and operating and scaling. And there's not a single person that I know who does this, who opens and runs restaurants because it's easy. It's so hard. It is so incredibly hard, but they do it because they love it and they cannot imagine their lives if they were to be doing anything different, that they wake up every day and this calls to them. So, you know, they're not doing it because it's easy. They're not really doing it because it's profitable. They're doing it because they love it. And I think if there are other ways to sort of be in the hospitality industry, but not take so much financial risk or put yourself out there, sign these leases that carry so much personal obligations... I don't see why more chefs and restaurateurs wouldn't be exploring those options, less risky options, um, having seen sort of the torment that they're being put through right now. 
if that makes sense. I don't know if that's necessarily answering your question. That is an answer to my question that makes sense. And it sort of brings up another question because I think if indeed there are going to be more ghost kitchens and if indeed there's going to be um, that concept really becoming a, a focal point beyond where it is even today, I think it's going to lead to a real showdown between the providers of the food and Grubhub and DoorDash and the other providers. Because obviously for everyone that has a ghost kitchen that's dependent upon a third-party delivery company for the delivery of their meals, they're at a mercy of an entity that could be even more, how shall we say, unsavory to deal with than a, than a bad landlord. Because at any moment, Grubhub can just turn you off, create their own mass, massive uh, industrial kitchen and start selling the food themselves and move out the, the other party. On the other hand, I have spoken with people like the owner of Ghost Truck Kitchen here in Jersey City, and I'm curious to know if you've seen this as well. There's a lot of thoughts around trying to in-house or collectively in-house delivery again and not be so reliant on those third-party companies for the reasons that we're all aware of. Have you noticed any of that yourself, or do you see that as not being a material dynamic at this point? No, I mean, it's surely a material dynamic. I just think trying to build that technology on your own is pretty daunting and very expensive. You know, I think maybe the more likely situation is that other companies who see Grubhub and and Seamless as being completely predatory, which they are, and completely detrimental to the industry, which they are, will come in and disrupt those services. You know, somebody who will come in and charge less. And I think their bento box is now sort of, I feel like getting into, like, you know, trying to to deal more with, with catering and take out and delivery. You've got companies like Talk. Talk charges a rate that is significantly less. I companies where there is a need, some company will arise to meet that need. And whether that is coming up with the logistics, but at, at a better rate and in a more efficient way, you know, I think that that might be more likely than restaurants sort of doing this each on their own, you know, coming up with these solutions on a restaurant by restaurant. You know, some of them may be trying, many of them may be trying. But it's so expensive and takes a really long time and, and building technology in the right way is really hard. I think you're right. I think that, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you would order up and the, the local restaurant had their own delivery person, but costs associated with that have obviously gotten out of control. But I do think someone will come up with a solution because it's like anything else. I mean, we did business with Maple when they first opened David Chang's uh, concept and their problem, as I saw it, was they just way overbuilt capacity as if every New Yorker was going to get every third lunch from Maple. But at the core, they had an interesting idea, which was to try to in-house the whole thing. And had they pulled it off and it worked, they would have made money, but it had issues. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing with Maple, if I could comment on that really quickly, is that um, they were serving at their highest 10,000 meals a day. They were delivering and making to order and delivering 10,000 meals a day which is incredible. I'm not sure that anybody really fully understood sort of the scale of that. You know, the problem with Maple was that they had a bunch of venture capital money that was backing them and those people got impatient. So Maple didn't fail. Maple was sold before they reached their full potential and then shut down. And I think that that's a sort of a crucial distinction. You know, I, I think a lot about how if Maple were in existence today, you know, how much they'd really be killing it. Yeah. And I said, and I say that, and, and I, full disclosure, I say that because my, my boyfriend is someone who was working with Maple. So, you know, I, I was with that, I was with him during that whole journey and it was really a, a more of the venture capital and patience and greed <laughs> that shut that company down than it was necessarily the operations. If they had had the proper runway, I, I think that they would have been able to make it work actually, but you know, they would have needed more patient investors. 
Timing is everything. I we another another entity we did business with was Blue Apron, and they were in about as much trouble as you can imagine pre-pandemic, and they hung in there long enough. And you know, it's like anything else. I think these things go in cycles. One of the two things that's come out of the pandemic that I think has been beneficial for restaurants. One we discussed, which is outdoor dining, which if De Blasio keeps his word and they continue that next year, and if by some miracle we're in a much more normal place, that'll be I think a great thing for restaurants. The other is the takeout cocktails, which they seem to renew every month. Um, Every restaurant I've spoken to that has a liquor license has said that that's been enormously helpful. It seems to me like that would be the most, if if they want to do everything they can to help these restaurants other than letting them open, which would be the most obvious thing to do if they can, that's something they should extend beyond a monthly basis. Have you heard similar feedback from your clients as to the, the benefit of that option of, of actually being able to sell cocktails to go. Yeah. Anybody who's familiar with the way a restaurant makes money understands that cocktails are your cocktails and wine are your generally your highest margin items. There's cocktails require some labor, you know, wine doesn't require a ton, I guess, depending on whether or not you employ a sommelier, the food requires all the labor and the labor is what's expensive. So the margins in alcohol are, are great. And that's an easy way and good way for restaurants to make money. But yeah, you know, they keep extending it, but they wait until the very last minute to extend it. So restaurateurs are like sort of having panic attacks month after month after month, worried about whether it's going to be extended or not. I think that uncertainty is just so cruel, (laughs) generally speaking. And the the way this is being managed is so terrible for everybody's psyche um, and also really scary for everybody's, you know, ongoing, you know, viability as a business. Definitely. I want to end on one question on a sort of an upbeat note. I read in one of your earlier interviews, that one of the things that you do is really convince people of their worth and you act more as a life counselor and a business counselor. And that, I thought about that when I read that because there are a lot of people I've found that go into the restaurant business that are more artists than business person, not all of them, but a lot of them, particularly the chefs and the creatives. So what would you say to people in terms of giving just sort of an insight or, or just some thoughts in general that will help people to really understand and tap into what their worth is in any sort of commercial or negotiating interaction so that they can really get what they deserve rather than just selling themselves short? I think this is a couple of things. This is, you know, both, as you said, chefs are creatives. You know, they just want to be making the art and doing the work. And it's nice if they get paid for it. But, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to make sure they get paid well for it. And I have a lot of clients who are younger and scrappier. And they just, I think also people just are not that good about talking about money with each other. You know, there's this whole movement now in terms of trying to make sure that women are getting paid as much as men for the same jobs, because there's not enough transparency around what people are getting paid. There's not enough salary transparency. So I think the one thing that I have is that I know what certain people get paid. I know what certain people make for doing certain jobs. And so I am someone who can help someone in that I say, ah, I think that this, what you're being offered right now is not for kids. But I think all, this would help everybody if everybody was more transparent about what they were making, about how, who was paying them to do what kind of work and for how long. I think everybody would have a better understanding of, of what their work is worth and not underselling themselves and not selling themselves short. But, you know, in particular, you know, these are some young people who are just maybe excited about the experience shouldn't be doing it at at a price at which the person who's receiving the service is getting much more benefit than they are getting financially. So I do regularly have conversations about how 
either if this is a price tag, we need to scale the work down that you're required to do. Or if this is the amount of work they need from you, we need to be asking for more money. But I do do that with, with a lot of clients. But you know, it's sometimes they just don't know. I get a lot of emails from young women who do recipe development. And they're like, oh, some big corporation called me and wants me to do this work for them. That's great. They want to work with this big corporation. You know, they, they would love to do this, you know, this, this partnership or this sponsorship. But, you know, do they want to do it if the corporation is paying them pennies for, for their work? Is it worth it to them? And having the conversation for them to at least consider it. But, you know, if everybody told everybody what they made, I think, you know, this would, I would never have to have the conversation with anybody again. You know, they they would all understand what the, what the market rate is for the work that they're doing and have a better sense of what their value is as a creative, especially to companies who are trying to rely on the clout and personality um, of, of somebody who is like a rising star in the culinary world. Well, I think that's, um, I would say the big takeaway for, for those listeners out there who are the creatives and who can relate to what you're saying, that it always makes sense to share what's going on with somebody that's going to give you the business, the negotiating side of it, because the last thing you want to do is sell yourself short, because as much as you love what you're doing, there's no reason to let someone take advantage of that. And if it's not something you're comfortable doing, there's always people like yourself that are able to do it, and that's their strength, and you want to partner up with somebody that can do that. Jasmine, this has been a uh, a phenomenal interview and incredibly educational and enjoyable. And I really appreciate you, again, agreeing to come and uh, have this conversation with us. And for those of you that would like to get in touch with Jasmine or learn more, the website is restaurantlawyer.nyc. And without promoting Jasmine or, or anything, I would say to anyone out there that's starting a restaurant or any business, but for sure a restaurant, you don't want to do it without making sure you lay a proper foundation and do your due diligence. And if you have an existing restaurant, it's always important to make sure that your documents are reviewed periodically, I think, in any business. You know, you don't think these things are important until they are, and then you wish you'd have done it at a moment when it's not a crisis. But this was great, Jasmine. So thank you so much. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Stephen, thanks for having me. Well, that was a very interesting and I think enlightening interview with Jasmine Moy. Absolutely essential if you're thinking of opening a restaurant that you do your due diligence and and reflect on those issues that Jasmine and I discussed. I also think that the interview itself lends in perfectly to my book recommendation, which is a book called Your Next Five Moves by Patrick Bet David. If you're not familiar with Patrick Bet David, he's the CEO of PHP Insurance Company, but he's probably more well known as the founder of the YouTube channel Valuetainment, where he has thousands of videos on all aspects of business. And I found him to be a phenomenal resource. And this book is a terrific book about strategic thinking. And I think at this moment in time, when there's so much uncertainty and so much being thrown at us, that it is absolutely vital that we put ourselves in a position where we can think through challenges and opportunities in a strategic manner to make the most of uh, what's in front of us. And um, this book gives a lot of actionable strategies on how to do that. So I highly recommend it. I want to thank everyone for the emails. I apologize for the delay in uh, interview time. Got caught up here in some very positive things, but I've got more interviews lined up. So we're going to get back on the weekly schedule. And um, just really appreciate everyone's emails. If you want to reach out to me with any questions, comments, or anything, please email me at stephen at wolcofoods.com, or you can DM me on our Instagram page at wolcofoods. 
Uh, if you like the podcast and you're getting value out of it, please subscribe. Please share it with a friend or friends who would get value from it. And again, just thank you everyone for everything. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>